It has now been one year since the apparent discovery of graves found in the Kamloops Residential School, the former grounds. But has this story ever really been verified? Is Canada really guilty of committing genocide? I'm Kenneth Malcolm, and this is The Kenneth Malcolm Show. So one year ago, on May 27th, 2021, the Kamloops Indian Residential Band released a bombshell of a press release with a stunning accusation. This accusation made its way around the world. The band claimed that it had used ground-penetrating radar to detect the remains of 215 children who were said to have died while attending the local residential school. Now, this statement, which was issued by an unknown First Nations politician, it was rather amateur in the way it was written. It was void of any facts or evidence. It was heavily built on emotion and quotes from elders who were passing on oral knowledge. It had a catastrophic impact on our country. This one statement sent off a whirlwind of events. It led to exaggerated headlines, erroneous claims of mass graves, accusations of genocide, international shame and contrition from Canadian leaders, more discoveries from other bands, sort of lookalike claims, genuine remorse and concern and sadness from Canadians all across the country, and eager progressive politicians who began competing over who could use the most hyperbolic and anti-Canadian rhetoric. It's not an exaggeration to say that this spurred an existential crisis among Canada's elites. Their whole narrative about Canada being a kinder and gentler, more progressive version of America, well, that all came crashing down with their own hyperbole and self-flagellation. Their whole worldview came crashing down. They tried to cancel Canada Day. They excused away the burning of churches and the toppling of statues. And they tried to force this as a major issue in the past 2021 federal election. In fact, during the English debate of the 2021 federal election, reconciliation with First Nations community was the most prominent topic discussed. And that wasn't organic. It was because of the organizers themed approach to the debate. They mandated that the topic received the lion's share of discussion. So in a debate about the most pressing issues facing Canada, reconciliation, the discussion on reconciliation lasted for 27 minutes. They spent 27 minutes of a two hour debate talking about reconciliation. Now, by comparison, during that election, a alleged survey that was done with the National Post found that First Nations reconciliation and that issue didn't even crack the top 10 issues that Canadians were focused on during the election. Canadians were focused on the cost of living. They were focused on increased funding for health care. They were focused on the post-pandemic economic recovery and managing the pandemic. Those were the f- top four issues. And instead, we spent one quarter of the debate talking about reconciliation with First Nations. Elites try to force that conversation onto us, and that remains their obsession and their purpose. They try to force this conversation, even though the details of that original story remain spurious and unverified. And so I want to go back to the original story and talk about what we know, what what has been verified, what facts have uh, are out there, and what remains just vague and, and unknown. And so joining me to have this discussion um, is I'm very pleased to be joined by Professor Tom Flanagan. Tom is a professor emeritus at the University of Calgary School of Public Policy. He served as a campaign manager to Stephen Harper's Canadian Alliance leadership campaign. And again, on Harper's Conservative Party leadership campaign, he is an award-winning author specializing in Canadian politics and Indigenous rights. So, Tom, thank you so much for joining the show. It's great to have you back. Well, <clears throat> nice to be here, Candace. 
So let's start with the original claim, the story that, that came out uh, just about a year ago now, that uh, the 215 children's bodies had been discovered at a residential school. Has there been any new developments, any new facts that we should know about um, from the story? What, what, is, what is the latest? Well, nothing that you could call a fact. Um, you know, it's really important to understand what happened uh, on May 27th. The chief uh, of the Kamloops Indian Band gave a press conference. In the press conference, she talked about the findings of ground penetrating radar, <clears throat> which had been um, conducted by an anthropologist from Simon Fraser University. There was the anthropologist's report was never made public. In fact, the Department of Anthropology, Simon Fraser, refused to make the report public. They said it was just between the anthropologist and um, the Kamloops Indian Band, which in a business sense was true that the um, Kamloops Indian Band had paid for it. But it's really uh, unusual to make public claims based on a uh, scientific report, which you refuse to release to the public. So that's the first thing. Uh, secondly, the anthropologist did later clarify that no human remains had been found. <clears throat> what she found was, uh, was she originally said 215 uh, potential burial sites. These were uh, disturbed earth. Uh, later, the number was reduced to 200, but that's not a significant difference here. Um, that's what uh, ground penetrating radar could do. It could, it can uh, show that the earth has been disturbed, but you don't know what's there unless you, uh, unless you excavate. Now, it's not surprising that the earth would have been disturbed in this area because it was an apple orchard. So trees had been planted um, there at one time. Apples, trees don't grow naturally in British Columbia, so they had to be planted. So there had to have been uh, soil disturbances taking place. Uh, there has been no excavation there. So <clears throat> to this point, there is not a single piece of concrete evidence that anybody is buried in these uh, sites, let alone uh, children from the uh, uh, from the Kamloops Indian Residential School. So, I mean, this is the greatest fake news story in Canadian history. There's absolutely no evidence for what's been claimed, and yet the story has gone around the world several times, as you pointed out in your opening remarks. Well, it's it's really interesting that the that the like that there was no demand for evidence that that the you know this press conference this press release was sent out i remember reading it over over and over and over again trying to figure out you know the the facts that you would see in the in the washington post or the cbc or the globe and mail they, they weren't from a report, as you said, because the report wasn't published. It was all based on quotes from people who had their own recollection of, of things that, that, that happened. So it, it didn't seem like the standard um, that we would usually apply to, to news stories uh, what, what was taken into consideration at all. They just sort of ran with the most hyperbolic uh, aspects of it and, and, and used that to basically condemn Canada as, as an evil genocidal uh, state. Um, I'm, I'm just wondering, you know, if, if, if you can comment on why you think that the media was so sort of quick to jump on the story, why there wasn't any verifying of facts, why they didn't ask for more evidence and sort of, you know, why this story took on a life of its own. Yeah. 
Well, there are, <clears throat> there are several background factors here that help to explain how this story could gather so much momentum so quickly. Uh, first of all, it played to an existing narrative. The narrative had already been established over, um, well, let's say about uh, about 30 years previously, uh, ever since Phil Fontaine made his famous interview with Barbara Frum in 1990. The story has been built that the residential schools were evil places where uh, students were deprived of their language and culture and, you know, in fact, even even tortured and killed. So there had been lots of uh, oral testimony to this um, in, in this direction over a period of many years. So the, the media were primed to report uh, what they thought or what they heard to be physical evidence of this pre-existing narrative. So when something plays into an existing media narrative, it's, uh, it's bound to get um, uncritical coverage. And that's exactly what it did get. Uh, secondly, at a more technical level, uh, one of the um, major thrusts of Aboriginal ideology in the last again, approximately maybe 30 to 40 years, has been reliance on uh, oral testimony. And this is not just having to do with claims about unmarked graves, but this has been a major trend in treaty uh, interpretation as well, that the treaties don't necessarily mean what the treaty text uh, says it means, but that um, they have to be interpreted in the light of <clears throat> memories. Uh, but of course, nobody's alive today who was alive when the treaties were negotiated. So what you typically get is uh, something along the lines of, you know, this is what I heard from my grandfather is what the treaty meant, which is often contrary to the explicit wording of the treaty. So here's, you have uh, oral testimonies from uh, elders, so-called elders at the Kamloops Indian Band talking about not necessarily their own experiences at the school, but what they claim to have heard from others about things that took place at the school, but that that fits into the notion of, of oral traditional oral testimony, which has become quite crucial in the world of indigenous politics. So there's another factor that helps to explain how this story could uh, gather so much momentum so quickly. One of the things that you and some of your colleagues who have taken an interest in, in researching and, and bringing some more truth to, to light, some facts to light, is just information about the school, the Kamloops Indian Residential School. You, you had a recent piece in True North talking about how they had this sort of world-class Olympic swimming pool. Uh, you found archive photos of, of children, sort of carefree, playing, happy. Uh, a lot of these uh, pictures came from our friend uh, Chris Champion over at Dorchester Review, the, the publisher over at uh, Dorchester Review. And it seemed, as, as well as uh, firsthand accounts of individuals who had gone to that school, people who had transferred to that school, people who had taught at that school, including many First Nations people who taught at that school, that really seemed to show a very different uh, perception of the school. You know, it shows children looking happy, healthy, you know, enjoying a variety of, of activities. This doesn't really seem to reconcile uh, with the sort of overly negative doom and gloom. You know, these schools were death camps that were that were murdering children. 
Um, so, so well, first of all, thank you for unearthing that and publishing it through True North. Um, but again, do, do you think that these 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 pieces of evidence that that sort of punch holes in the in the narrative uh, will have any impact in, in in sort of changing changing the conversation? And and if not, wh wh why do you think that um, you know these these sort of powerful pieces of um, historical documentation don't impact the conversation on this topic? Yeah, well, first of all, uh, as far as some of the evidence goes, um, <clears throat> the um, Truth and Reconciliation Commission published a list of 51 children uh, whom, whom it alleges to have died at the school. That's over a period of more than 100 years. Uh, not 215, 51. Now, of those 51, a majority have death certificates in the British Columbia archives which are available to the public, although the TRC didn't bother to check on this source of information. And uh, <clears throat> what the death certificates show is that uh, the children died for, uh, you know, sort of normal causes. Uh, a few were runaways who suffered accidents. Majority um, died of, you know, kind of ordinary diseases of the day, such as tuberculosis, <clears throat> and they were buried typically at their home uh, reserves. Uh, children came to that school from all over British Columbia. And, you know, it's a big province. It wasn't always feasible to send the body back, but most of them were sent back to the, uh, um, to the home reserve where they were buried. So there was nothing uh, secretive or mysterious about, the, uh, about these deaths. I mean, you know, every death is sad, but people do die and particularly in an age before antibiotics um, diseases like um, tuberculosis and typhus <clears throat> were epidemic killers um, there's a lot of evidence that the as you said the Kamloops residential school was all things considered not a bad uh, not a bad place there's uh, I mean they had their own swimming pool large swimming pool at a time when uh, that was very unusual for a school to have a swimming pool, any kind of a school uh, in the 1950s. Uh, there are many, many pictures of children playing in the pool or otherwise uh, enjoying uh, sports and recreation. They look like happy, healthy kids. They're well-fed, they're well-nourished. We have the testimony of prominent people who attended there like Len Marchand, first um, Indian member of the federal cabinet, political liberal. Who said it was a uh, you know pretty good place? They said the potatoes were sometimes kind of watery, but uh, overall it was pretty good. Um, as you correctly point out, some of the teachers were Indians. They were graduates of that school. Uh, majority of the overall staff members were Native Americans. I mean, there are many jobs. Uh, these 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 schools were major centers of employment for First Nations people. So because they had janitors, they had dorm supervisors, they had secretaries. Um, on and on, and a uh, majority of these people were were First Nations. So there's all kinds of, of the his evidence that a historian would regard as the typical stuff of history, showing that while the schools maybe were not perfect, that they are uh, they weren't charnel houses where where children were slaughtered. Um, so I come back to my point about how a story plays to an ideological preconception. It becomes truer than true. It doesn't require any evidence in the minds of media reporters, you know, who for the most part are not um, uh, trained historians, are not trained to evaluate evidence. 
they work under deadlines, they get some facts, they put it together, um, and they run with it. And so they tend to run with something that that fits their preconceptions. And uh, there's been so much priming over the years as to uh, as to what residential schools were like, so that this story takes on a life of its own. And if you read the coverage, um, many, many of the articles go way beyond what even the chief had announced. The chief uh, said that she thought that uh, she had found grave sites, but many of the stories claim that 215 human remains had been found as if as if bodies had been excavated. You know, there was there was nothing like that. But another journalistic practice is to uh, base your story on what other journalists have written. I mean, at one time you go to the, the the clippings file in the newspaper, the morgue, so to speak, and look at the stories. Well, now it's all on the internet. So a reporter reads one story, adds a couple of comments, passes it off as his own story. And so the same fallacies get repeated and repeated and repeated. And the more they're repeated, the more they uh, uh, come to seem true to people because they're being uh, repeated now. And of course, our prime minister was no help here because he immediately jumped on the story. And three days afterwards, he announced uh, that all the flags on federal buildings in Canada would be flown at half mast until further notice. And in fact, they weren't put back to normal flying position until Veterans Day in uh, uh, November the 11th. So what's that, June, July, August, September, October, it's about six months of flying at half mast. I mean, this is completely unprecedented in Canadian history and uh, all in the service of, uh, of, of, of what, of nothing, of, of no real discovery. Well, I saw that with the use of the term mass graves, because of course, mass graves usually conjure images of, you know, sh shooting fields or killing fields and, and, you know, Eastern Europe during the Second World War or like Cambodia um, in, in, the, in the early 80s, not something that would happen at a Canadian school. And yet, you know, that, that term was, was, was shuffled around. There were some corrections uh, from, from more responsible media outlets, but other media outlets still, still use that term, um, mass graves. I... I, I wanted to ask you because, okay, so so if there were 50 confirmed reported deaths from the school, and then, you know, we had this bombastic report saying 215, I mean, one of the first things you, as a researcher or a journalist, you would do is, is okay, who were these children? What, what are their names? Where were they from? Where are their families? Presumably the families would be distraught looking for their child. You'd send their child away to school and then all of a sudden the child's gone. It, the, the, just the, the whole premise of the idea that, that we, we could just throw around these numbers and, you know, the, the 215 from the Kamloops band was just the first one we heard. I think it was uh, 715 from a band in Saskatchewan and then another 250 from another band in central British Columbia. And, and you know, the, the numbers keep accumulating. I, I haven't even really kept track of all of the you know, latest numbers, but but it seems like every few weeks we still, to this day, a year later, we have reports from reserves saying that they too have found X number of of, of buried children. I, I just wonder, you know, f f from a research perspective, perhaps someone in the government or Truth and Reconciliation Commission, do they have a archive of lists? Like, who who are these children? What are their names? Do, do we know this information? Is, 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 is someone looking into it? Or, or, or again, why, you know, why are we so quick to accept these large, large numbers without the, without the first bit of evidence, which would be 
names and and you know family records of, of who these children were yeah um okay there are, there are really three big pieces of mythology which come together to to create this story the first one is the so-called unmarked graves which um you know at this point we don't even know if they're burial sites they're soil disturbances uh secondly there's the legend of the missing children and this is a, a huge source of confusion yes there were uh, children who died at school which is sad and there were but there were children who died at home too that was sad i mean a lot of children died um until the discovery of antibiotics because the these diseases that were brought in from the old world were particularly lethal for uh, First Nations populations that did not have inherited uh, any kind of inherited uh, uh, resistance to them. So yeah, a lot of children died, but that doesn't mean that they're missing. Uh, yeah, maybe they're missed. It's parents always, of course, miss a, a child that they've lost, but missing implies that nobody knows what happened. Um, now these children are, are listed in, in records like the, uh, um, the diaries of those who ran the schools, although many of these you can't get access to. I mean, for example, <clears throat> there's a document called the Codex Historicus for the um, um, Kamloops Indian Residential School, which is in the archives in the Provincial Museum in um, uh in, in vancouver but it's sorry is that in vancouver or victoria i can't remember which anyway um uh, one of those major bc cities but uh, nobody can get access to that the, <clears throat> the facility's been closed and they're not making copies of uh of the uh of documents for researchers and uh um so there, there, are, sadly, there are dead children, but they're not really missing. Now, the TRC threw around at various times numbers of thousands of missing children, but you know, it's never clear exactly who these kids were. It's, it's a mix of kids who may have died at school, kids who may have died at home, uh, statistical artifacts that arise from inadequate comparison of records, failing to consult birth certificates. It's a real hodgepodge. I mean, just to give you one example, uh, if you remember the name Helen Betty Osborne, a uh, teenage Cree girl who was um, killed in Manitoba decades ago, um, she's listed as a residential school fatality in Manitoba. Well, she wasn't living at a residential school at the time that she was killed. Um, there's, there's many, many uh, uh, cases of that type. So these, but, but the TRC made matters worse by referring to, you know, not just three or 4,000 missing children, but 15 or 25,000, you know, numbers with absolutely no um, basis in, in evidence. Uh, and then the third, the third mythical pillar of this story is the, uh, the idea that uh, that all Indian children were forced to attend these schools. Um, I mean, only a minority of uh, Indian children ever went to a residential school. Uh, there were more uh, who went to day schools on reserves than to residential schools. 
And uh, there was a large number who never went to any school at all up until, you know, as late as the 1940s, a plurality of Indian children appeared not to have been in any kind of school. So, uh, yeah, residential schools were a reality, but uh, they weren't the dominant reality of, um, of the First Nations childhood experience. Uh, and the, the, the records of the federal government are clear that for decades after they started funding residential schools, um, there was no compulsion to attend. Um, sometimes it was recommended to parents, but uh, they, uh, they weren't required to send their children to residential school. There wasn't anything like compulsory attendance until well, the late 19, after World War II, when the welfare state started to expand into the world of Indian reserves and um, that led to a, a lot of family breakdown. That's a long story, but there was an infusion of cash and uh, alcohol became traded on reserves and there was a lot of family breakdown. And for, for several decades, the residential schools served like orphanages for children that uh, were believed to be in danger or neglected. So at that sort of late date, yes, there were children that because there was no provincial mechanism for dealing with Indian children at that point, the provinces didn't get legal authority to deal with children on reserves until much later. So there was a period of several decades when um, children that you know, at, at a later date might have been taken into care by provincial governments were instead were sent to uh, residential schools. But th that's a later piece of the story and, and uh, only, a, only a small piece overall. So you have these interlocking bits of mythology of uh, uh, unmarked graves, missing children, forced to attend, and then they all come together into this story about uh, Canada's not only a cultural genocide, but maybe even a physical genocide of First Nations people. And as I say, it's, it, it's not supported by evidence, but it plays to ideological preconceptions about progressive ideology, about the role of so-called white supremacy and colonialism and mistreatment of uh, everybody except white uh, white people. And so you got this receptive uh, ideology. It's just waiting there for uh, some semblance of proof, which of course is, in this case is not proof at all, but it's packaged to look like proof. And and then it's, it's easily, it's seized upon then by journalists and politicians. Well, it, it's, it's, it's tremendous the impact that it's had on our country over the past year. I think they've done a tremendous disservice to First Nations people because uh, I, I can't imagine how you can you know, carry on living a, a, a normal life or, or consider you know, your own future and, 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 and building a life for yourself in a country uh, when you're told to believe that, you know, uh, that, 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 people, uh, that, that the people who you know, run Canada are genocidal white supremacists who are trying to kill you, basically, or eliminate your entire uh, race. I, I, I think it's such a disservice to, to First Nations people. But uh, Tom, I'm wondering if, if you can... Uh, tell us a little bit about what you think should be done at this point, because I, I know in your in your piece that you wrote for True North, you said that there must be an excavation. We need to sort of put this issue to rest. Um, I'm, I'm wondering how 
you know, sensibly minded Canadians can counter this this really damaging narrative, uh, what we can do to, to, to push back against it, and uh, from a public policy perspective, uh, what what do you think can be done to you know not only move past this 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 chapter, but also um, help to you know raise the uh, fortunes of, of First Nations people and enable them to have uh, you know <laughs> good lives in Canada. Well, I'm trying to do my little bit by writing about it. Uh, you might say I'm trying to expose fake news in true north. I hope you'll appreciate the sly humor there. Uh, but uh, no, seriously, uh, I and friends are writing about this as much as we can, hoping to create a, a body of, of literature that even if it doesn't have a lot of impact immediately, will be there for, uh, for the future. Um, secondly, there need to be excavations to test uh, to test the theory, but uh, not just any excavations. Um, there's a recent news report from the um, Saddle Hills for, uh, First Nation, Saddle Hills, Saddle Lake, which is, a, anyway, Saddle something in northeastern Alberta, which is uh, where the Blue Quills residential school was located. And um, they've been digging. Uh, and they claim, according to CBC reports, to have found perhaps 200 plus skeletons. You know, but, but first of all, uh, there's no professional or RCMP supervision. Uh, it's just people digging and they're digging in a cemetery. Now, it's not surprising that you're going to find uh, burials in a cemetery. They claim to have found... Um, children's remains, but they also say that they've been reburying as they go. So there's no evidence that can be shown uh, to the uh, to the public. So this, this story has generated headlines about remains being found, but it's not the kind of evidence that any um, court or any any uh, serious scholar would accept as as evidence It's just based on uh, somebody say so about what they claim to have seen when they dug in a cemetery. Uh, according to the story that's circulating, the, uh, the the records of the Blue Quill School show, I think it was 22 children who died there. Whereas they say the records of the Catholic Church, I mean, and, and this was a common situation where you had a residential school, but you also had a parish church and you had a common cemetery and the cemetery was used by members of the reserve as well as by the residential school. Um, so they claim Catholic church records, which again, nobody is able to see. Uh, they claim that uh, um, there were over 200 children died, but the, the story as originally reported said between the ages of four and I forget what the upper limit was. Well, children weren't admitted to residential school until they were six. Uh, so if a four-year-old died, it wouldn't have been at a residential school. So, you know, this is all mixed up and we don't even know if they're interpreting the church records properly because at this time, most Catholic church records were kept in Latin. And uh, I've done some of my own family research, uh, 19th century Irish immigrants, parish churches kept records in Latin. Uh, it's not that simple. There's a lot of abbreviations. Uh, I am a former altar boy who has studied Latin and I can read it more or less, but 
when you're confronted with handwriting and abbreviations and it was, it's, it, it's, it's not that easy. Um, so anyway, I'm sure there's going to be a lot of stories around the anniversary of Kamloops, but they have to be, they have to be read very critically. So come back to your question about what should be done. Well, excavations above all, but properly supervised excavations in which the, uh, the RC, if not the RCMP, at least uh, some kind of professional supervision is there. I mean, ideally it would be the RCMP because the allegations are that these are crime scenes, that these are children who were uh, murdered or died of neglect or abuse at the, at the schools. Well, if that's true, it would be a crime scene and there should be police supervision. But at the very least, there should be a professional supervision with with the records made available to the public, not kept uh, secret like the record of uh, the original uh, uh, ground penetrating radar at the Kamloops. So I think that properly conducted uh, excavations would be the way to go. But what I fear is going to happen is that we're going to get more and more uh, amateur excavations like the one from the Blue Kills School that don't actually prove anything, but which are hyped in the media as here, you know, here is the evidence, here is the remains. Well, if you dig in a cemetery, it's not unlikely that you're going to find human remains. That, that's what's in a cemetery. So um, uh, I, I'm not too optimistic right now about excavations. Excavations properly carried out, yes, but I haven't seen any evidence yet of any of these excavations being properly carried out. Well, it's, it's such a good point. I just want to go back uh, because, you know, the 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 to Kamloops or Kamloops First Nations was sort of the big first one. And then the next two, there was Kawasis in, in Saskatchewan and Lower Kootenai in British Columbia. Um, both of those two secondary ones, uh, the unmarked graves were within existing cemeteries. And, and you did have people from the local communities coming out in the media saying, look, there's no discovery here. It was a graveyard. It shouldn't surprise anyone that there was graves in a graveyard. Um, someone else saying, uh, look, this was a graveyard that serviced the entire community, not just the, the, the residential school. In fact, the one in, in, in <laughs> Cranbrook in Lower Kootenai, the uh, graveyard was a attached to the church, which was attached to a hospital, and it predated the residential school by 100 years. So, so you know, to your point that, that they're finding skeletons, it's like, well, you know, th this would have been a graveyard for the entire community and not, nothing to do with the, the residential school. So I, th I think that's a really... Excellent point. Well, Tom, I really appreciate your time and I appreciate all of the research and the work that you're doing to bring this really important issue uh, to light. So thank you so much for your time and thank you for your efforts on this. If I could just toss in one more point about the unmarked sure. graves. Uh, graves may be unmarked today, but the, the common way of marking a grave on a on, on Indian Reserve uh, was a, a white cross, a wooden cross. Uh, you know, now this is Canada. White crosses don't stand up very well to the Canadian winter. So, and we're talking in many cases about alleged burials that are decades or even more than a century old. Uh, you know, Canada as a country is full of unmarked graves, not, not just of Indians, but of all kinds of people that were originally marked with a white cross, but over time that cross has disintegrated. So that's another aspect on this that when they say unmarked graves, that may be uh, the situation today, but that's not necessarily the situation. Uh, if, it, if it ever was a grave, there most likely was a, a wooden cross there to mark it.
Uh, yeah, that's such an important point, such a nuanced point that I, again I never saw reflected in in the CBC or the or the Toronto Star or their coverage. So, no, are you they won't. making that point? <laughs> yeah, unfortunately. All right, Tom, thank you so much for your time. Great to have you on the show. Okay, Candace, my pleasure. Bye bye. All right, that's Tom Flanagan. I'm Candace Malcolm, and this is the Candace Malcolm Show.